The name of this message is uh, called The Suffering of God the Father. The Suffering of God the Father. And when I thought about doing this message, a lot of times we think, when we think of, you know, suffering, a lot of times people think of human suffering. And they don't, and sometimes people are, you know, who are ignorant of the gospel and ignorant of what Jesus did for us. They'll be like, well, does God even care? Or they'll be, you know, does God know what people are going through? Or if God really cared and he's all powerful and he's all loving, you know, you get all those things, the philosophical questions and so forth. And a lot of that just comes from just sheer ignorance, not realizing that God entered into our suffering, that that God works our suffering for the good for those who love and are the call according to his purpose. Amen. That the sufferings that we presently go through are not to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. These are all scriptures, you know, that actually the suffering we go through now works in eternal weight of glory, the scriptures say. The Bible has a very robust uh, theology of suffering, and the one who suffers the most is God. And, but when we think of God's suffering, typically we think of the cross, and we think of what Jesus went through on the cross, the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, and what he went through on the cross. And, and we have a, you know, I don't believe we even fathom, even begin to fathom the depths of what he went through. We understand enough to know he died for our sins, that he went through incredible anguish and pain. Uh, we went through a hematrodosis where even before he went to the cross where he died for our sins, prior to that, he sweat as it were, you know, his capillaries popped. You know, you have all kinds of blood vessels in your body, but you have, you know, veins and arteries, but you have those capillaries, those little ones that get right under the skin so your blood can flow to the uttermost parts of your body. And, and apparently it was the capillaries that popped because he was under hematidrosis, great stress. And, and even before he went to the cross uh, and died on it, he was going through great suffering. But on the cross, he, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, our hearts break when we think of the suffering that Jesus went through, and we contemplate that. And Good Friday is coming up pretty soon, you know, uh, this spring, not too far away now, and we'll be focusing on what Jesus went through and his suffering for us, and we look forward to that. But it's interesting, uh, we don't usually hear of what God the Father went through. In fact, I don't know in all the years that I've been a Christian, and I know I'm still a young man, so I've heard a lot of messages, just kidding, uh, in all the years I've been a Christian, I don't think I've ever heard a whole message on, usually people don't even talk about it, but a whole message on how God the Father suffered. And I thought, you know what, Father, because I contemplate and I think about what the Father went through at times, you know, in my walk with the Lord, and being a dad myself, uh, and even if you're a mom, you know, you can say feelings toward your children when they go through things, you get a glimpse of that. And you don't have to be a parent to understand feeling sympathetic for someone who's suffering that you care about deeply. But to see what the father went through and to really think about it and really, it caused me to appreciate. And as I said, I've, I've thought about it from time to time. I've brought some of the thoughts I've I had together through the years and even added some thoughts as I began to really think about it in a deep way to the degree where I wanted to present a message on the suffering of God the father. I'm not saying there's never been a message on it. I'm sure there's, through centuries, there had to have been a number of messages on this. But uh, I think this will be, hopefully, just, you'll appreciate the Father more. We think of the, the Father, uh, the Son suffering as a mansion. We also think of 
the grieving or the suffering that the Holy Spirit goes through in grieving, you know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, 3, when the Lord had seen in the first couple verses and the verses that follow the wickedness of man on the earth, that, that his, his heart was, that he was grieved. And, it, and it, 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 it grieved God. And it says his spirit would not always strive with man. And in Galatians, or I should say Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we're told as believers because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we're told in James 4, he jealously desires us because we belong to him. And we're told in Ephesians 4.30 not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed under the day of redemption. So we can cause the grieving of the Holy Spirit, you know. And of course, uh, when Jesus said he'd send a spirit, he said, he, he said he'd send the Holy Spirit. He said he'd send another comforter. And the Greek word another, there's different words for, in Greek for another. That specific Greek word means just like himself. The, the, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but they make uh, the three of them uh, share, uh, they're, they're the one God. You know, they, they're one in essence, but three persons. And, and, uh, and the Father, the Spirit, and, 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 and Jesus, uh, the Son of God, all three grieve when we sin. But you think of the Spirit grieving because uh, he lives in us and, and, and there's an emphasis on that. Even though the Father and the Son live in us, we see those scriptures that deal with the Spirit of God grieving. And we see, we see what Jesus went through on the cross, but we don't often think of what the Father had been through. So I want to get into that. Uh, and, you know, there's different reasons I've probably been thinking about this lately, but you remember uh, the message I just gave last Sunday, and hopefully I'll do part two this Sunday, Lord willing, on Hosea. And Israel, the northern kingdom, was in total apostasy, had re rebelled against God, and and he had a marriage covenant with them, the Sinaitic covenant there in Genesis, uh, or there in Jeremiah chapter 31. We read that, uh, you know, he talked about he'd make a new covenant with them, not like the one he made at Sinai when he was a husband unto them. And in chapter 3, he gave them a right of divorcement because they went to other gods and refused to come back. They just rebelled. They wouldn't return. And he couldn't save them under the old covenant. He had to damn them. But he didn't want to damn them. He wanted to save them. So... He gives them a right of divorcement under that covenant, but then he plans on making a new covenant. And then we see Hosea. He calls Hosea, whose name has a very similar meaning to the name of Yeshua or Jesus. Jesus' name is, you know, you know God is salvation, and Hosea's name means he saves, you know. And, you know, you can, and they got the same root in Hebrew. So it's interesting when you look at Hosea, God chooses him, to, and he tells him to marry a wife. You remember that? who is a prostitute, an adulteress and a prostitute. And, she, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole thing because we just went into that through Genesis or through uh, last week's message. But I just want to say this much. He picks her specifically, he says, from the first few verses in other places because Israel has become an adulterous nation. She's chosen not other men than God. She's chosen other gods than God. And the most important relationship we have is with God. And so... When we see Hosea suffering and we see this man suffering because the woman that he married uh, and has his first child with has children from other men. We got into that, the meanings of their names, how it was all this powerful living parable and how his heart must have been wrenched within him and how he hurt. But it's in Hosea, it's through Hosea that we see the love of God, the Father. We see the love of God himself because what Hosea went through 
and I've pointed this out every time I teach on Hosea, what he went through is just, an, is just a human being, right? Suffering because of the unfaithfulness of his wife. And it nowhere gets close to what God himself goes through because we're made in God's image. And the emotions and the, and the things that we feel and that we experience and, uh, as human beings are just a dim mirror as his image bears what he experiences on a much greater level. And the suffering that Hosea went through is and was infinitesimal compared to what God went through with the adulterous nation, with his people. And that's heavy when you think about it. In fact, we're told in Hosea, you know, we're told in the scriptures, Hosea, Jeremiah, and places about God's heart and how he said, he's, my heart is turned over within me. I mean, it's just like a ripping anguish. Uh, Jeremiah, who's a weeping prophet, he's God's spokesman and he's God's spokesperson. He says, oh, that my eyes were fountains. And he's a weeping prophet. God is weeping through him. He's showing his heart. So we see the great love of the Father, but it's because God is love and he's infinite love. He's omnibenevolent. He's perfect in his love. Therefore, when he experiences betrayal, it hurts on a level that we can only get a glimpse of. Do you understand? So we think about that and we consider the incredible amount of his love for us. It's when we break his heart. That should, that should encourage us not to break God's heart. That should encourage us to be faithful to his commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. And so it's important that we're obedient. Now, so uh, that gives us a glimpse into the father's suffering, he, the anguish that he feels in him allowing us to have relationships with, uh, you know, the marriage relationship is a picture of that. But he also shows his great love in that there are also parental relationships. Fathers, sons and daughters, mothers, sons and daughters. And the pain that a parent goes through are often a picture of the pain that the father goes through. In fact, Jesus, who said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, he said to the rebellious Jews, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen does her chicks, but you were what? Unwilling. He shows even the anguish of a mother hen trying to protect her chicks. And we can see many parallels between fathers and, and, and mothers and the pain that they go through as a picture or what they go through with their children as a picture of what the father goes through, which is quite, I and mean, we had the prodigal son, you know. He didn't just happen to be looking in the distance that day. You know, he was looking, he was waiting for his son to come back. And there's a pain that the father goes through and just the longing uh, for us to return to him if we've been backslidden. And so we see that whether it's in a marital relationship or it's in a relationship with a child with regard to the prodigal son. Uh, and we have to keep in mind, we have to understand that again, whether it's a marital relationship and there's unfaithfulness or whether it's a child who's rebellious toward a parent, that that is a small picture of the anguish God feels. And that way, if you're going through something, whether you're having a really hard time in your marriage, you know, maybe it's not adultery or something, hopefully not, you know, but whatever it is, or just where you feel like a sense of you don't have the closeness that you want, you need to realize that that's what the Father's gone through with you. We've, we're all Gomer, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory. You know, I'm not saying everybody here, everybody's, you know, committed adultery, but I'm saying we're all going in the sense that we've all broken God's moral law. And every time we put something before God in our Christian walk, we've committed 
a form of adultery. That's why it says in James 4, 4, you adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's not talking about physical adultery. You make yourself an enemy of God. He's talking about spiritual adultery against God. And that happens with Christians when they aren't following him. And, and now there's a difference. James 4 is talking about those who are practicing rebellion against God. And hopefully that's none of you. If it is, you repent, you're breaking God's heart. And it's in that passage where it talks about that the spirit that God has put to live in us, his Holy Spirit grieves to have us and is jealous for us. It breaks the Spirit's heart, breaks the Father's heart, breaks the heart of Jesus. So whether it's a marital or whether, as I said, it's a son uh, going astray, you know, uh, it's imperative that we understand the pain. Uh, and I, and I, it's not imperative for your salvation. You don't have to understand the pain the Father went through to have a walk with God. But I believe the better you understand it, the less likely you are to sin because you'll start to see your sins as arrows that you fling in the heart of God. And when you begin to see your sin as arrows that you fling in the heart of God, the more you'll hate your sin and the more you will not want to betray the one who gave his son for you while we were yet sinners, amen? So, and it's heavy too because think of it this way. Here's another reason that makes me really think about the love of the Father. He knew that the only way he could save us was to send his son into the world to die for us, amen? And he sent his son from heaven. That had to be really painful. Just for his son uh, leaving him, uh, now God's omnipresent, of course, but there's a sense in which Jesus left his glory in heaven and he became a man and he was born into this world. And if you have kids with all three of my children, with my two daughters, Holly, and then Heather, and then later Josiah, and Josiah's back with us again, but when they had moved out uh, each time, it was really painful for me. I'm like real personable, you know, I value all my relationships uh, that God's given me, and, you know, I, I could be 75 years old, and they could have lived with me till they're 50, and it, it'd be it's still hard, you know, and I guess none of them have been like freeloaders, so I haven't had that experience where it's like, see the door, <laughs> you know, I haven't gone through that, because, you know, they've all been such a blessing, uh, and, you know, just great kids in so many ways, you know, not perfect, but great kids, so when Holly moved out, it was really, really hard, you know? But I was, I was really, really happy too because she's marrying a godly man in Chad. And then when Heather moved out, same thing. It was, it, was, it was tough. And now I only have two, right? And now the second one's moving out. But she has a great husband and, and Adam. And, and, but now I have one kid left, right? It's my only son. And, uh, and it was really hard when he moved to live at Biola uh, University for, you know, a while and that was because now we're totally empty nesters at that point. And it was painful because I'm used to, you know, hanging out with all of them to one degree or another. But now none of them are in the house and great relationship with all three of them and a great relationship with Josiah. And, and uh, Lisa and I both, we would talk about it. Oh, this is harder than we thought, you know. And that was nothing compared to the father, right? And his son leaving not a home and going a few miles away, 40 miles away or whatever it is, but his son leaving heaven, right? Leaving heaven. Now think about this. There's a lot to this when you think about it. There's that. There's so many aspects of this. 
So I've got fa- prodigal son, father, son, uh, Hosea Gomer. There's all these different things that, that give you light as to the pain the father must have been th- went through, you know, in how much he suffered. Now, keep in mind, we're not saying with Jesus that Jesus, that the father suffered on the cross. Some teach that. That's not biblical. Jesus suffered on the cross for us. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. The Father didn't suffer because he went through what Jesus went through on the cross. The the Father suffers because of what Jesus went through on the cross for us. The pain that Jesus went through had to have hurt the Father in ways we can barely comprehend. Because we're his image bearers, it would hurt any of us for our child to suffer like that. How much more the Father in heaven. So, but even before we get into that, his father, his son, left heaven. He didn't go to another town nearby and where he had a, a dorm to stay in and plenty of food and everything. In fact, his, my son, when he left the house, uh, he had a place to stay. And he could come back to the house too if he wanted to, you know, any time during that time. Jesus was locked in and he became homeless. He was... Uh, to a degree. In fact, he was born <laughs> in a manger, and the Christmas cards make it look so beautiful. It was stinky, ugly, and sad, you know, because he was couldn't even find a place that they couldn't even find a place to end for him. That was a picture. In fact, we're told in Matthew eight twenty, uh, Jesus said, "Foxes have dens, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." He was rejected in many of the places he went to preach you know, uh, in the area of Galilee and so forth and roundabout, rejected by the religious leaders, uh, rejected by uh, so many people. He came to his own, it says, his own received him not in John chapter one. Even though he made the world, the world did not receive him, it says. That's pretty heavy. So he's not only sending his son and his son's not only leaving heaven, but keep this in mind. I've known Holly, Heather, and Josiah for a vapor of time. That's what the Bible calls our lifetimes, vapors. And compared to eternity. And it hurts when you miss somebody, when you, you haven't seen them for a while. If I haven't seen one of my daughters, I see Josiah more often because he's living in the house right now. But even if I haven't seen him or if I don't see the daughters for a while, it hurts. And I've only known them for so long. But how long was the father with the son? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, right? His going forth will be from Bethlehem and from the clan of Judah, Micah 5.2, and his goings forth will be from everlasting, speaking of the Messiah. Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 13.8. In Hebrews chapter 7 and so forth, it talks about Melchizedek, who is uh, a picture of, I mean, he's got the, priesthood and we're gonna have a whole message on him pretty soon but guess what it says that jesus resembles melchizedek in that he's without beginning of days melchizedek without didn't have a genealogy he was without beginning of days and jesus he certainly had a genealogy but in compared to eternity the word was god in eternity past he's without beginning of days so the father and the son we can't get our brain around it we're together forever past and now he's leaving and he's not just leaving he's becoming homeless and he's not just going to a town next door and returning for dinner. <laughs> he's 
going to be gone for quite a while. And he's not. Now, when Josiah left, it was interesting. He went through a, probably the heaviest trial, not probably, the heaviest trial of his entire life, you know. And he's been through, you know, trials for a guy his age. You know, he's dealt with some uh, physical sicknesses and stuff through the years, you know, uh, things like that. He's doing great. You know, you would never know that, but he went through his own forms of suffering. But when he went through that trial, he went through a spiritual trial where he was under, I mean, it was right when he left and went to go to Biola. It was uh, a very, very deep, powerful spiritual trial where he was under attack from the enemy. And I had, we had no doubt about it. I mean, it was like, it was, and our hearts broke. Because all we could do is pray fast, cry out to God. And God allowed that for a duration of time. Well, the trial that he went through, as intense as it was for him, was, was nothing by way of comparison of what Jesus went through. Although we do go through those trials to enter into his sufferings. Amen? And I believe God timed it that way with him to cause him to just grow, you know? He goes to a Bible school, and he's been learning his Bible, the Bible all his life. And I told him that there's nothing you can learn in that school that you're, nothing come close to what you're learning right now in the trial that you're going through. I mean, because it was like a every second of the day trial, every second of the night trial, very intense. And, uh, and it was just amazing, but God got him through it. But Jesus went through a far more intense trial. And the father, had, and as a dad, seeing your son go through a trial or your daughters when they go through trials, very painful. You've been there, right? It hurts the depths of your soul. But the father seeing his son go through way beyond what we can even comprehend because of his eternal relationship with him, because of the quality, not just the duration of that relationship, but the depth of that relationship. And I mean, it's, but it gets even crazier because Josiah, when he was going through his deal and he had left the house, it was, he was still Josiah. When God the Son, the Word became flesh. He became flesh. He didn't cease to be God, but he took upon himself the nature of a servant and became a human being. Now you're human, so you're like, oh yeah, that could be kind of tough. No. He's God becoming a human. It's a huge step down. It would be like if Josiah left the house and we've been with each other for eternity past, and then he leaves the house, and then he's homeless, but he has to become a cockroach too. And I know that could sound insulting to you, but no, that's insulting to the cockroach. Why? Because you, as a human, me as a human, becoming a cockroach, I'm still in, we're still creatures. It would be, be one creature, creaturely being, becoming another creature. That's a step down for sure because you're made in God's image. But God is not a creature. He's a creator and he became a, he became Jesus. He became the, God, the, God the Son. He is God the Son prior to the incarnation already, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But he becomes God the Son of Man, I should say. He, he's God the Son, but he's also the God-Man. He partakes of humanity. So think about that. So that's the father. Watch. Now, it wasn't just for a period of time that he becomes human. Jesus rose again from the dead and he still has a human body. 
You understand that? And he will have a human body and he intercedes with us at the right hand of the Father. And he will have a human body and he ever lives to intercede with us. He'll always represent us to the Father for all eternity to come. He's locked in to that glorified body. Now it's an amazing human body. And he didn't cease to be God. He's still God. But you understand that uh, even though the essence of who Jesus is doesn't change, the fact that he took a humanity upon himself is something that's an eternal decision that God the Father had to make because he so loved us. Amen? And the scriptures are clear that him who he foreknew, he, that's us, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might become the brother of us all, you know? And so we, he has many, many brothers now, Jesus. So there's a lot that comes out of it too. But the anguish the Father went through is mind-boggling when you think about it. So what I'm saying to you right now is this is even before we get to the cross, what the Father's going through, okay? When we think of the Father's love. It's before we get to the cross. And then when you think of the cross, and I really, the first time the scripture really opened this up to me was when I was a young Christian and I was trying to get my head around understanding why God is allowing and calling Abraham to offer up his son to be sacrificed when I got, know that God doesn't want us to offer up human sacrifices and the Lord revealing to us through scripture that Abraham longed to see the day of Christ and Sodom was glad and that it was the first passion play. The father was calling Abraham to offer up Isaac, but he wasn't going to let him do it as a picture of how the father on the same mountaintop, Mount Moriah, where he told him that he would offer up his son. And he told, you know, through the angel, he told Abraham, who's the father of many nations and the father of Jewish faith, he told him to withhold his hand. The father didn't withhold his hand because we couldn't be saved if he did, if his son didn't die for us. But we see a great picture of Isaac carrying the wood up his back to, for the burnt offering, Jesus carrying the cross. And we don't have time to get into that whole thing because we've been through that a number of times. It's such a beautiful picture, one of my favorite typologies of Jesus. Certainly my favorite typology of the father and son relationship and, and how God would give his son for us. But it's in that story that we see something really profound about the father's suffering. Because when we look at that story, we understand when we read the narrative that it wasn't just what Isaac was going to go through as brutal as that would be if he had gone through it. He didn't have to go through it, thank God. But what Abraham went through. Abraham is told by the father, take your son, your only son. And there's emphasis there. Take your son, your only son. And then he says, whom you love. I mean, this is going to be very, very painful for you, Abraham. But Abraham's not going to have to go through it. It was very painful. Every step of the way probably seemed like a mile for Abraham, you know? Like, what in the world? Now, Abraham was obedient. And he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Why does why is that? I mean, there's not wasted words in the Bible. And in Genesis 22, this narrative is, you know, I think it's like, you know, just 19 or so verses long, this whole story. It's like, it's just so powerful. But he doesn't waste words. Take your son, your only son, 
whom you love. He wants to distinguish him as his only son, Isaac. Not take Ishmael, take your son, your only son, because he's the only son with regard to the promise because he went and got together with Hagar to try to move God's plan along, which he blew it in the flesh. That caused all kinds of problems to this day in the world. Uh, But he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And by the way, that Isaac was born in, with a supernatural birth, remember. His mother couldn't have a baby, and she was not fertile anymore. And at the age of 90, she has a baby. What's God doing there? He's giving us a picture that he's a picture of his son who will be given, who would be born to a woman who couldn't have a child because she wasn't with a man, a virgin. And there's so many parallels. It's, it's, undi- it's undeniable. It's like you start to see these things like, it's the sovereignty of God. Only God could weave these things together to show his great love. But keep in mind that Isaac, Abraham was giving up a very special son, your only son, whom you love, who all your hopes and promises are, are in, you know, outside of trusting God himself. But those were the promises God had made to him. Now he's going to take him and, and sacrifice him. It's like, what in the world? And he's showing that he is going to give his special son, whom he loves, and I've pointed out to you before, the first time you see the word love in the Old Testament is right there. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. The first time you see love in the New Testament is at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. The Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. And even the way it reads, it's like a comment. It's like a parallel. It's like, this is the one I love. So the son I'm giving. And... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3.16. So can you imagine the anguish that Abraham went through? We talked about the anguish that the prodigal son went through, or the prodigal son's father went through. We talked about the anguish that Hosea went through. And just as I said, those were infinitesimal as far as the anguish they went through compared to what the father went through. So also, the pain and anguish and sadness and despair that, that Abraham went through is a small glimpse of the, of the infinite because God's an infinite being. Pain that he went through in having to give his son for us. And... Because Christian theology was influenced by Greek philosophy in the, you know, not too early centuries of the church, uh, some theologians began to, and many of the, in the deterministic camp, the reformed camp, don't see God as the father as basically having feelings even, you know, you know, that he's so unchangeable he can't even feel. That is so far removed from the Bible that's so far removed from the God of the Bible when you start to say that God the Father can't feel. Oh, what are you talking about? You need to have your mind renewed by the word of God and not by Greek philosophy. Amen? Because he is a God who certainly does feel and we can grieve him. We can hurt him. He's the God who says, if my eyes were like fountains, you know. He's speaking through the prophets. When we see Jesus wept, Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen who? The Father, amen? You see, the Father's great love because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the one God, three persons, one God. So this is really amazing. Now keep in mind, it wasn't like God like, oh no, what's going on? They're gonna crucify my son. I can't believe this. No, this was all the plan from the beginning. From the get-go, from the time Jesus left heaven and probably prior to it on some level, you know, 
there's some form of inner anguish that the father goes through in, in giving his son, but there's also this great joy. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, amen? But Jesus went through great anguish. So the father has this great plan, but there's pain involved. In Acts 2.23, it says, this man Peter preaches, meaning Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Catch that? He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's heavy. You are responsible. You put him to death with the, the hands of godless men. You wicked men did this. But it was part of God's plan. Because he knew that when he sent his son to the world because of human depravity and people not wanting to be submissive to God's moral law and wouldn't want to have this one reign over them, that they would do exactly this. Of course, he maneuvered all kinds of things, but they made the choices. But he knew the choice he would make to pull off the plan of redemption. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, a couple chapters later, verse 27 and 28, we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And I love how the holy servant Jesus uh, just contrasting the holiness of Jesus with the wickedness of men, whom you anointed, both Herod, the king, and Pontius Pilate, the prefect, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, everybody, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's powerful. We do believe the Bible teaches predestination. It just doesn't teach unilateral, unconditional predestination where humans are puppets. It teaches that we also have free moral agency. There's responses that humans make and humans are held accountable. But God knows what they'll do in certain circumstances. He's just the master chess player, you know. He's playing with a, a, a chessboard with billions of people on it, right, who have free will and he still comes out to his glory in the end. Amen. His will can't be thwarted. So it's amazing uh, that in this, God had this plan all along. He knew what his son was going to go through. And we read in 1 Peter 1.20 of Jesus, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, think of it this way as well. I've mentioned a lot of things to consider about what Jesus went through and what the Father went through in allowing his son and sending his son to die for us. But think of it this way as well. Way as well. How many of you have kids that are absolutely perfect that have never sinned? I don't, you know. I praise God for my children, you know. But none of them are perfect, and I'm far from perfect. We're f far from perfect, amen. But you know what? He said, this is my son in whom I'm well what? Please. Jesus was a perfect son. He only ever loved the Father back. Never did anything contrary to the Father's will. And when we keep God's law, we do it, I'm talking about his moral law, the law of Christ. As Christians, we do it because we love him. If you love me, you'll be my commandments. Well, Jesus lived a perfect life. Who convicts me of sin, Jesus said, right? There was no sin in him. He was without guile, it says. The Holy One was given for us, the holy for the unholy, the just for the unjust, it says. He's absolutely perfect. So the father is giving his son who's absolutely perfect. 
and his blood is called precious. He didn't have sinful blood. He didn't have blood that was tainted. So this perfect, precious son is whom he's sending. So I'm try- what I'm doing is I'm trying to build for you, because I've done this in my own meditations on thinking this through and what the Father's done for us, is line upon line, precept upon precept, regarding what the Father went through, you know, regarding uh, the relationship with the Son and what he experienced, which we can barely really get our brains around as I speak, you know? We can, because it's ultimately unfathomable. We, now we see through a glass darkly, right? So we're just trying to get a glimpse of what the Father went through, right? It's not like, okay, this is exactly what he went through. Now we know exactly how he felt. We won't get there until he opens our eyes more. And who knows how much we'll actually be able to fully understand it. And it gets, gets even stronger as I'm building this case, so to speak, through Hosea, the father of the prodigal son, which is a picture of our father in heaven, also a picture of Jesus' heart, through the grieving of God over sin, through all these aspects that I brought up about his son, you know, ever, with ever, him for everlasting time, leaving heaven, right? Being rejected, being homeless, but all these things he went through. But think of this. His son was going to go to the cross and die the most horrible death. And when I mentioned to you guys that uh, he wasn't just going to come to earth as, you know, in this theophany or, you know, Christophany, appearance of Christ. Christ appeared in the Old Testament at times, right? It just, here I am. Now you see me, you've seen the Father. No, he's going to become a man. He's going to suffer unimaginable torture and pain but he also is going to take upon himself humanity part of the creation as the creator and we read in philippians 2 5 through 8 have this attitude in yourselves which is also in christ jesus it's about an attitude of humility who although he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Listen to this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I think it's interesting. He's talking about he humbled himself. He became a man. It just shows us like this digression of what he went through. He becomes a man. He becomes a servant, like a slave. And then he dies a death. But then it doesn't just say a death. It says, even the death on the cross, the most humiliating kind of death you could die, the most painful physical death you could die. Remember in Isaiah 53, it says he was bludgeoned or beaten and marred more than any man. I should say it says he was marred more than any man because of his beating. So this is really mind-boggling. And the father has to witness this. Now, think of it this way. Think of this. It gets even heavier. What if you were told and you found out that you could give your son, that there were all these people, you know, they were in this huge, you know, bus coming down the road, and you were in a circumstance to where the only way you could save them, and all these people just, they loved God, and these people had, were sacrificing their lives on the mission field, trying to help people, and they were just super, these were people that were sacrificial, they gave up their jobs, and they all had these really great 
jobs and these great lives and they left their homes and they went on the mission field and now they're on a bus back from the mission field and they were just singing praise to God. And then you found out that these people are all going to just be destroyed in a traffic accident. You just found out. And the only way you could save them is if you gave your child on their behalf, Right? and pushed your child in front of a vehicle that was going to go through a red light, and guess what? They, that bus wouldn't be hit by that car because it would screech and stop before it would have, the drunk hit the red light. That would be really, really hard to do, even as great, wonderful as those people were. And you knew all about them. You knew, wow, just got a picture. Uh, just passed through your consciousness. All these different people just loving God and sacrificing their lives are coming back to greet their families and all of a sudden they're going to just all die. But you could give your child. That'd be really, really, really hard to do even still, huh? Right? But guess what? God didn't send his son in the world. It was a lot harder to die for good people. Now, guess what? You're called to push your child in front of a car that's going to run into a bus that's full of serial killers that are going to the penitentiary. That's harder to do still, huh? Well, who did Jesus die for? Think about it, right? I'm sorry. It's kind of a crude illustration because I made it up on the fly right here. But think about this. Listen to what the scriptures say in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Think about that. For we are still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. I wish I had time to get in the Greek words here because it's not a pretty picture. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Someone would really die for a righteous man. Give their life. But perhaps, you know, perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. Someone might dare to die for someone who's, you know, got a great reputation, is relative, not good compared to God. Romans is very clear, there's no one righteous, right? But relatively good compared to other people, right? But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Listen to this. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, rebels, criminals, Christ died for us. Those are three of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Last couple years, I've been, uh, I'd say last year and a half or so, I've been meditating upon those verses because just, they just blow me away. I think about them from time to time and I go through seasons with those verses like, wow, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Someone rarely died for a righteous person, but while we were sinners, man, rebellion toward God, the Bible says we were hostile toward God in our minds, that we were children of wrath. I mean, we were these wicked creatures. It wasn't like we were just, you know, we we're like in rebellion toward God. The flesh, you know, selfish, trying to be our own gods, made in more, being transformed in the image of Satan more and more as we lived our lives. Callous, hard-hearted. He died for us. So think of what the Father's going through. I'm sending my son to die for these guys. But the heavy thing is here is God demonstrates his own love toward us. God goes through all this suffering, God the Father, that is. All this suffering of allowing, sending his son to die for us because that's how much the Father loves you. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. And that's when that word so becomes one of the biggest words you've ever seen. You know, even though it's two letters long. For God so loved the world. Sometimes when I write the word so, I'll put like several, zero, several O's after it, you know, to emphasize so. You know, if you got a text from me, you might have seen that, you know. Just 
Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And you keep reading that, what happens? But men love darkness more than light. And they hated the light, refused to come to light, lest their deeds would be exposed. Talks about a world that rejects him. Right after it says he so loved the world, Jesus talks about that. So he's sending his son to die for a world that loves darkness more than light and to provide salvation for everyone with the intention of saving whoever will put their trust in him. Whoever will believe. He doesn't want that any of them perish. So he provides salvation for everyone. But he knows many will reject. But he still wants to show his love and demonstrate it. That's just amazing God. Now it gets, it, it's so heavy. In fact, it gets heavier. Because, listen to this, man. We're children of wrath before we get saved, before we're born again and made new. Amen? And think about this. This is mind-blowing to me. Is... How does a righteous God who's perfectly holy, perfectly just, and because he's perfectly holy and just, must punish sin, how does he save us? You know? How does he save us rotten sinners? I mean, first of all, the first step toward the gospel even coming to pass is birthed in the heart of God because he is love. 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. But he can't and he won't, I should say, he won't just wave his hand and save us. Because guess what? If he just saves us and we're in rebellion to him and there's no payment for sin, there's no repentance, you know, he would be an unjust God because he'd very contradict the very character of his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, which he so clearly explains that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There has to be a punishment for sin. So listen to Romans 3. You can turn there if you want. Romans 3, verse 25 and 26. It speaks in Romans chapter 3. Uh, Romans 3 is about, you know, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 1 talks about the sinfulness of, of lost humanity way back to the antediluvian age, you know, not long after creation when the flood came and men were so wicked and God gave them over to depraved minds and they didn't retain the knowledge of God even though they knew God, they didn't retain the knowledge of God and they just became wicked. Then in chapter 2 he shows how the Jews also broke God's moral law. They don't have a, a, you know, a right standing with God through the law because they've also broken his law. Then in chapter 3 he quotes various passages and places of the Old Testament emphasizing the sinfulness of man. And then in chapter 3, verse 25, we read, whom God displayed publicly, that is Jesus. He displayed him publicly as a propitiation. And this word propitiation means a payment. A payment to God. A propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to what? Demonstrate his righteousness. So when Christ died on the cross, it was to demonstrate what? God's what? Righteousness. Now we think when Jesus died on the cross, it was to demonstrate his love, right? Well, that's true too, but also demonstrated his righteousness. Why? Because if we were going to be saved, payment for sin had to be made, amen? Because God is righteous. And guess what? God owes us something. Because we're sinful and he's just and righteous, he owes us wrath, to be be punished. You know, just like a judge Give someone a sentence that they pay what they owe society, that they owe the state when somebody goes and does time, right? Well, guess what? We owe God righteousness that we could never pay, amen, because of our sin. But God owes us the sentence of death, penalty. So when Jesus goes to the cross, it's a demonstration of his righteousness. How is it a demonstration of his righteousness? 
because he's going to make sure sin's paid for. But because he loves you, he's not going to have you there. He's going to have someone substitute for you. Amen? And guess what? Only God could be that substitute. And it's the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. This was to demonstrate, verse 25, his righteousness. Because in the forbearance, that's his kind patience, his forbearance. In the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Instead of just wiping them out of the Old Testament, just wiping everybody out, right? He was patient because he had a plan. Yeah, they deserved wrath. We're a bunch of criminals. We're in that bus and we're not like repenting. We're yucking it up of all, all the evil things we did and we deserve death. But he's going to have his son die for us. God passed over sins previously committed. Verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just. Now this is powerful. So that he'd be just. That means righteous, holy, just, fair in a sense, but it's, mercy is totally unfair in another sense, right? But that, so he would be righteous, and I only mean fair in that sense, that he would be just. That he would be just, and the justifier, catch that? That he would be justice. This is one of the most profound verses in all the Bible, Romans 8, or 3.26. That he would be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow. So at the same time on the cross, he's showing two things. He's showing his righteousness and his great love. Amen? He's showing, hey, I'm going to be just and make sure the sin's punished. I can't just let sin be unpunished, otherwise I'd be an unjust judge. If their payment isn't made. If you go to court and you're given a $5,000 fine because of something you've done, you've done wrong, horrendous thing you did wrong, but the, and, you, and, the, and the fine is $5,000, and there are all kinds of other people, and they have to pay that fine, but the judge says, you know what? You don't have to pay it. Would that be just? You did the same thing wrong they did? No, but guess what the judge could do? He could pay the fine for you, amen? Then the payment's still made, so he's still just. The debt was paid to society. Well, in this sense, Christ, God became a man, and he paid the sin debt, so he could still be just. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now look what he says. That he would be just, meaning sin would be punished, in the person of his son, even though his son is sinless, the payment's made, he became the sin offering. He'd be just, but our sin was paid for in Christ. So he would be just, and the what? Justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Justifier means he made you righteous. The condemnation that you and I deserved was taken off of us. Because of what Jesus went through. Amen? He justified us. We were declared righteous before God. Because the righteousness of Christ, he took our sin penalty that we could take his righteousness. Amen? And it says he became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now this is really, really heavy. This is one of my favorite verses in Psalms. Psalm 85.10, listen to this. This loving kindness and truth have met together. Think about that. Think what happened on the cross. Punishment and God's righteousness was shown and his love was shown at the same time. He showed that he was righteous. Yes, I'm going to take care of sin. I'm going to still deal with sin. That that's going to be paid. But I'm also going to show my great love because I do not want these people to perish forever. I want, I, want them to go to, I want them to be with me forever. So he becomes just in giving his son so the payment's made. But he also, in doing that, 
justifies us. So there what meets? Justice and his mercy meet together. His righteousness and mercy kiss. You know what says that in Psalm 85? Verse 10, listen to this. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness or justice and peace have kissed each other. That's powerful. When you put that with Romans 3, 25 and 26, it's at the cross that his justice, right, and his loving kindness come together. Where he's allowed to make peace, with, where he makes peace with us. I should say where he's able, of course he's allowed, but where he's able to make peace with us. Now remember when Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. So much want to see the Father's glory. I want to see God's glory. And remember what happened? God put him in the cleft of a rock, put his hand over him, because God's a consuming fire. If you saw him in all his glory, he'd melt, he'd dissolve, and he shows him his afterglow. Guess what he sees? We read in Exodus chapter 33, 18, is where he asks to see his face. He wants to see his glory, and he's going to let him see his afterglow. So in chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, we read, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. This is now he's seen his glory. You expect him to see this, this power? Well, guess what he sees? Of course, he sees some power. But somehow, as he's passing over, showing him his afterglow, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. It's the glory of God. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow. So on one hand, when he's seen his glory, he's seen he's full of love, goodness, kindness, compassion, mercy. Amen? But guess what else he sees? And that he will know by me, well, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. Wow. He's also a God of wrath, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. Well, how will he not clear the guilty? We're guilty. Not when you come to Christ and you receive forgiveness, you're declared righteous, amen? And that's the only way he could do that was if his righteousness and his mercy kissed and they kissed at the cross where his wrath and his love met together. Isn't that powerful? It's, 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 a, be, it's a beautiful truth, and, and most Christians don't understand that, but praise God, God's, this is in his word. This is where righteousness and mercy meet at the cross. And praise God, and I believe it's best exemplified there in Romans 3, 25 and 26, where he made a propitiation, verse 25, payment, God, Wrath was poured about upon Jesus. Now this is, where, this is where the great love of the Father becomes even more magnified. How? Because it's not just that his son's going to die and get hit by a car. Like I said, the analogy is, all analogies fail when you really talk about trying to show who God is, right? They, they give you glimpses, but it wasn't God saying, oh, you know, you're getting hit by this car that would otherwise, No. He poured his wrath upon his son. Do you understand that? He didn't just send his son, but he poured the wrath that we deserve upon his son. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you imagine the anguish? The, the, the wrath that billions of people deserve was concentrated 
upon his son at the cross. Wow. In Psalm 103, verse 8, David says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Wow. That's an interesting. <laughs> merciful and then plenteous in mercy. Why is God repeating himself? Because he wants us to understand how merciful he is. And it's really heavy when you think about it. Because Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Listen to, Psalm, listen to Proverbs 16.6. By loving kindness, now listen to this. By loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and his truth, which is connected to his righteousness, his justice. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. God is love, and he atones for our sins because he is the just one who gives himself for us and the justifier of the ungodly because he did pay for our sins. So when Christ took our place on Calvary's cross, there was a legal transaction that was made. It's there's inescapable. As much as emergence and people want to get away from the forensic legal aspect of what Jesus did for us on the cross, makes them feel better about themselves maybe. It's very, very clear when you read Romans and other passages that it was a legal transaction that was made. It was that God in his love made sure that payment was made on our behalf so we could be cleared and we could be forgiven. And it's really, really heavy when you think about it. And it says in Romans 5.19 that by the obedience of one, that is by Jesus, shall many people be made righteous. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Amen? And it says it pleased him to crush Jesus for us in our behalf. So the pain the father had to have gone through in crushing his son, who is all those things to him and more that we've already studied, is mind-boggling. But this had to happen. It wasn't as though there could have been an alternative plan. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, he talks about that if we could have been saved through the law, Right? If there was a law that God could have given by which we would be saved, he implies that he would have done that. But no, there was no way we'd be saved by law. God gave, God's law is who he is. It reflects his righteousness. And we fell flat on our faces. Yet, Jesus had to die for us. In fact, in John 3.14, Jesus said, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. Must. Had to be lifted up. That's the only way we'd be saved. Just as the snake was lifted up by Moses in the desert, says Jesus. Then he goes into, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then a few verses later, in verse 34, the crowd answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Wow. So they, they understood that he was teaching that he had to die. He had to die for our sins. Remember, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, of Gethsemane, what happened? He prayed three times. What did he pray? Father, if possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. What does that show you? Think of what the Father's going through at that point. His son say, Father. And he's sweating, as it were, blood mixed with sweat. And he's, according to Hebrews chapter 5, there's heavy crying. He's bawling. His, his capillaries are popped, hematridosis. The blood is hitting the ground with his sweat. He's pleading with the Father. He's sorrowful, it says, unto death. He almost dies in the garden, but he's got to go to the cross, amen? And he has to endure this time. 
And probably the enemy is all over him. And the father is just in his heart. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. What does that say to you? Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I want you to call us off. I want them all to be damned. I don't want to go through this. What he's saying is if it was possible, if there was another way we could be redeemed other than what he was going to go through on the cross for us. Do it, Father. And that was in his humanity, crying out, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And sure enough, three times, you know, thank God he said, are you happy? He said, not my will, but your will be done. And that was a great love of the Father in sending his son and going through the anguish of seeing what he was going to go through. And it was the incredible love of Jesus staying the course, amen? You know, we always talk about the love of Jesus and what he did for us. But Jesus also wants to understand for God so loved the world, the Father's love, amen? And what he went through. It wasn't like he said, okay, son, I'm done with this paper. Oh, you're going to go and die for the world? Great. Okay, great. I'll see you when you get back. It wasn't like that at all. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit's plan from eternity past mind-boggling and it had to happen because listen to psalm 47 7 through 9 no one can redeem the life of another or give to god a ransom for them the ransom of a life is costly no payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay nobody can pay a ransom for you no other human being you can't redeem your brother the bible says only God could do it. That's why God had to become a man. That's why Jesus had to be lifted up. That's why God said if he could have given the law, he would have, but he had to send his son. And that's why when Jesus says, if possible, let's come past me. No, it wasn't possible. The only, well, wait a minute. All things are possible with God. Yeah. The only way it was possible was through his son. That's how it was possible. That's how it was possible. And he did it. Amen. So I close by saying to you that and on the cross, what does he say? And <laughs> we just go on and on, but I'll end here. My God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. And so many commentators. Well, that was so we'd understand in Psalm 22 that, that, that he's going to be going through what Psalm 22 talks about. And he's basically let us know where that's at. No, that's part of Psalm 22 as well. You know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is in his humanity feeling the anguish of what it's going to be like and beginning to feel the anguish of bearing the wrath of the Father. Okay? Now he has, by God's wisdom, he knows the big picture too. Because you continue to read Psalm 22, he understands what's going on there. But the pain, he just speaks out of the anguish. And the Father, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just think how bad it must feel for the Father to have to pour his wrath on the Son. And, and I close with this verse, and I just love this verse. You hear me read this from time to time. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. If you address the Father... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, bought with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Amen. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. Wow. For he was foreknown. Then it goes on to talk about how he was foreknown from before the world was. You know, my hope and prayer is that we will love the Father more and that we'll love the Son more and that we'll love His Spirit more. And, you know, earlier today, my wife walked into my office and told me that Rush Limbaugh had died, you know? And I had to kind of do one of these, you know, she knew 
that she, I, that I just didn't want to bawl in front of her, you know. And I don't know why, but it just welled up and I was in tears, you know. And several times through the day, you know, because I heard her listen to the news here and there, I'd hear something and tears would flow. And, and it's funny because I was not an avid listener of Rush Limbaugh. I'd hear him off and on, you know. Sometimes I'm driving down the road, I would, I would turn him on, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, catching up on the news and what's going on when something heavy was going on and what have you. And I uh, wasn't in agreement with some of his positions and everything else, but I felt so bad for him, you know, just, uh, just died of lung cancer, you know. And, you know, we've got this new president, right, new administration, which is bent on a lot of evil, you know, uh, things that are bad for the country, I personally believe. I mean, butchering babies is one of the main things, right? No one could justify that, and that's about as wicked as you get, and, uh, and then sending money overseas to help the butchering of babies. And I know Rush, at least, you know, he talked about against abortion at times, uh, things of that nature. And I know in the last, and I don't know where he was spiritually, but I know in the last several months, he's talked about a relationship with Jesus, and he's been seeking the, God and that, and that he knows he's going to heaven and so forth. And I hope that's true. I haven't looked enough to, you know, but my heart just broke for him. And I thought, man, I barely, I don't even know this guy. Just heard him off and on through the years. And my heart broke. And I thought, what did the father go through? And seeing his son die, right? Who has this incredible relationship from eternity past. It, it's so much deeper, you know what I'm saying? Than we even fathom. And he is so loving. He so loved us that he gave his son. Amen. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's my son whom I love. He gave him for us. And the father gave this great sacrifice. And we get bummed out or we think it's a burden to have to go to drive to church <laughs> or have to go do this or bless somebody in some small, menial way. We love him because he first loved us. Get your mind around how much he loves you. We, he was forgiven much, loves much. Get your mind around around how much he forgave you, what the father went through in giving his son, what the son went through in paying for your sins, amen, and the grieving that happens to the spirit when you sin. And let's avoid sin. Let's live lives of righteousness, amen. Let's please the one who gave himself for us, and let's live to him, for him, amen. So those things that you're struggling with and the, the self-focus, let's get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes on Jesus, amen, and start to emulate and live and follow the steps of Christ and live sac self-sacrificial lives, amen, laying our lives down for each other, helping each other out, being there for each other. And I'll tell you what, when you do that, and I challenge you to do that in the name of Jesus, it's nothing. Oh, man, I've been doing so much work for the Lord. It's nothing compared to what Jesus went through, amen, or the Father went through, or the Spirit goes through in grieving for us. Nothing. And guess what? It's what we owe him. God didn't owe us anything. Amen? Except wrath. But he took care of the wrath himself and put it on his son. But it is our duty to obey him. We have an obligation, a duty to obey him. Amen? Not to pay back what he's done for us, but because we're made in his image and we ought to love one another. The Bible says, oh, no one, nothing but to love him. And when we love each other, that means we treat each other right. Amen? Praise God. Let's pray. Father God.